The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is truly a joy to be with you today as we welcome Jamar Tisby. Jamar is the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective where he writes about race, religion, politics, culture, and more. He is also the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. His first book is fantastic. It is called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. The subject matter of that book is a lot of what we will be chatting about today. He is currently studying for his PhD in history at the University of Mississippi with a focus on race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. He is incredible. I have been very excited for you to hear this conversation. It has been rolling around in my mind for a little bit. We talk today, frankly, about the church, about the U.S. church and its history of racism. This is a conversation that I needed to hear, though it was hard to hear. You know what I mean? It was one of those conversations. I look forward to you hearing it and be curious your thoughts on it. And Jamar is just such a nice person. I kind of wanted to hang out with him, but it's you know weird to ask that of a guest, but he's awesome. Before I start, if you have not done so yet, could you please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The New Activist favorably? So many of you have been doing that. We see all of those comments. We appreciate them. It is truly the most effective way to throw your support behind this show and these conversations and allow us to continue to hear great wisdom and insight like we will get to hear in just a moment from our guest, Jamar Tisby. Before I hit record, you and I were chatting a bit about living in the South, and I live in Florida, which of course is the South, and you grew up in Chicago, but you live in the South, and just curious, like in some of your writing, you've talked a bit about uh, what it's like, the Southern culture, and I'm curious, what what makes you care about that? What makes you connected to the South? And tell us, you know, if you can, about Kool-Aid pickles, if you don't mind. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that uh, you pulled that out. I, I guess I can't help but talk about the South, and um, it's it's a complicated thing, right? Uh, some, some parts are, are beautiful, some parts are horrifying, especially in terms of the racial history here. But um, to me, living in the Deep South, and especially the Delta, which is a different part of the South, uh, one author called it the most Southern place on Earth, it has just enlightened me so much. I mean, I am adamant about the fact that a lot of people want to look at the South in general and places like Mississippi in particular and sort of hold it at arm's length and say, that's this backward part of the country, they're really racist, all that stuff. But I say the South and places like Mississippi and the Delta hold up a mirror to America and tell us more about ourselves than we ever knew. And that's certainly been my experience. Um, So I'm indebted to the South for a lot of things. I came down here as a teacher through the Teach for America program and uh, served as a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. It was an article in USA Today in 2019, listed my county, uh, which is in Arkansas, 
as the fourth poorest county in the U.S. And all of those issues stem uh, directly from race-based chattel slavery and then later sharecropping. So, you know, my commute, I go to graduate school at the University of Mississippi, and uh, my commute to Oxford is literally through cotton fields. So that brings to mind our nation's history and reality in a way that I never experienced growing up on the North Shore of Illinois. And then I've had incredible experiences, particularly meeting people here. So James Meredith, the first black person to integrate the University of Mississippi, was uh, a member of my Sunday school class. And I taught him. No way. Taught meeting and interacting with John Perkins, who's in his late 80s and still speaking and dynamic and uh, a civil rights activist to this day, uh, learning about people like Fannie Lou Hamer and Medgar Evers and having uh, Memphis and the National Civil Rights Museum uh, built off the Lorraine Motel where King was assassinated right up the street virtually. So it just, it's been an incredible education uh, in racial history, but also in culture. You mentioned Kool-Aid pickles. Uh, I had never heard of this before I came to the South. Yeah, yeah. Your blog was my start. I'd never heard of them. <laughs> They're pickles steeped in Kool-Aid. So there's like this sweet, sour kind of flavor and kids love them, stains your fingers. And uh, it's just one of the little gems that, that uh, this region of the nation has to offer. Yeah, you know, I'm struck by there's this pattern, it seems, because you talk about and you write about like going through these cotton fields and thinking about what that imagery, of course, evokes about America's history. And then you talk about living in these different places. And there's this kind of through story, uh, through your story of this, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, like immersion education therapy, right? Because you talk about growing up in Chicago, then you go to Notre Dame, and you go to this Catholic school, and you're not Catholic, and then you go to Jerusalem for a year. And I'm curious, it just seems to be such a part of your formation that has something to do, there's just something that about how you've put together that your life that you put yourself in starkly different places and you absorb that. So I guess the question I'm getting to is, what's it like going to Catholic school as a non-Catholic? What is it like going to Jerusalem for a year? What does that do for you? That's a great term you used, immersion education. I I hadn't really thought of my experience with that phrase, but I think it's accurate. So for some reason, I've always gravitated toward circumstances and situations and communities that are outside my norm. And I can't claim much intentionality to it. I think God has led me in these directions. But it was truly formative to go to the University of Notre Dame as a Catholic school because they have something there called the Center for Social Concerns, which is built off of the premises from Catholic social teaching. It is this long tradition within parts of the Roman Catholic Church that your faith leads to concrete action and particularly justice for the marginalized and oppressed. And I just think that's so remarkable. I didn't come to realize this till long after I had graduated, but the fact that you have an entity like the Center for Social Concerns and the fact that you have a tradition like the Catholic social tradition is so different than many parts of the white evangelical church that I had often been around, which, which often creates this dichotomy between the gospel and justice. Well, here in this Catholic school, there's this linkage between the gospel and justice and, and no dichotomy, which is a lot more similar to the black church tradition than um, white evangelicalism in that regard. 
And so I think what going to Notre Dame did was subtly, I, didn't, I wasn't necessarily conscious of this, but teach taught me that um, the natural outgrowth of our faith is working toward justice in the world. And to that end, I had some concrete experiences, including what was called uh, the Urban Plunge, which was a 48-hour experience in the inner city of Chicago, particularly with unhoused people. And that was an eye-opening experience. But I also did a summer service project while I was a student there. And I spent my summer in the North Lawndale community of Chicago working at a Catholic youth day camp, uh, which was my my first sort of immersive experience into um, the inner city. And that is sort of what put me on this trajectory of where can I go to, to serve in the places that are sort of most under-resourced. And I think that's eventually what led me to Teach for America, which led me to the Deep South. Wow. We're, we're going to get to the color of compromise, but there's just, there's just this piece that like so many people who are listening are in this phase that you're, you are in, in this part of the story where you're traveling to these unique places and learning these neat things. So the decision to go to Jerusalem, what prompted that? Wow. Yeah. Very, very few people ask me about that. And I'm so glad you did. I knew going into college that I wanted to study abroad. My sister had studied in uh, Barcelona in Spain and had come back raving about it. And it was just like this idea that once I go to college, that's, that's what you do. So I had been planning to go in the spring semester junior year. And you always plan these things for spring because you don't want to miss football season at Notre Dame in the fall. So that was my plan. But as I was a sophomore, I was researching programs. And honestly, I was very unhappy at that point. Um, it was my third semester in college, and it was just a really stark racial awakening. Black people were just a hyper minority there. We were around 3% of the undergrad student body, and most of those were athletes, which I was not. So I wasn't even plugged into the small black community that was there. And I was in a major that I didn't like, no shade, but I was in a business major, and that was just not really not what I had in mind for college. So I, was, I, I had this restlessness, and so I was just researching programs, and I saw an informational meeting to go to Jerusalem, and I said, oh, that would be cool, walk where Jesus walked. And so I go to this informational meeting, and it sounded really neat, and they had this sign-up sheet there, which I thought was just like for more information, maybe a newsletter kind of a thing. But the first email I get is like, welcome to the Jerusalem program. We're so glad you joined us. I'm like, wait a minute, what? And it turns out they were leaving that, that next semester. And so um, I ended up going to the Holy Land in spring of my sophomore year. We spent the whole semester there. We went to places all over what is now the state of Israel, which is about the size of New Jersey. So it's not a very big area, which hmm. is important because when you're doing these tours of places like uh, Nazareth and Jerusalem and other places, Bethlehem, you know that's where Jesus walked. It's just not a big enough space where there's a lot of inaccuracy there. So Right. There's just not enough options. Right, right. right. Yeah. So it, it was, as a Christian, it was a very powerful experience. But we also had a unique experience. A lot of times Christians go with these sort of like pro-Israel groups. They're very one-sided. They're very politicized. And I think we got some authentic exposure to the, the complicated political and social situation there because we stayed at Tantur Ecumenical Institute, which is Vatican property. So what didn't belong to Israel or Palestine. And uh, right outside our gates was a, a checkpoint to get into Israel. And so we saw 
what was really dehumanizing of day laborers from Palestine going into uh, Jerusalem and, and being subjected to all kinds of interrogation and automatic weapons and all of that. We, we took classes at Bethlehem University with uh, Palestinian and Arab instructors, and we also took classes at Jerusalem University with Jewish instructors. So it was a really unique experience that, that um, gave us a different perspective and more exposure than I think a lot of people get if they go with a formal tour group. I wonder, though, what's happening to you in this time and in your formation, because we know that like the punchline that we're getting to is that you wrote The Color of Compromise, New York Times bestselling book. It is uh, the teaching of it is now on Amazon Prime, like on video. We, we know where this is going, but I'm curious about the formation. What what led to you wanting to talk about the church and race and and what what is happening here? I think so much of writing is autobiographical in the sense that even if you're not telling your own story, what has led you to your topic is very tied to your own personal experiences. And that is certainly true of The Color of Compromise. So I've always been sort of interested in history in passing, but it really became a central focus of my public ministry uh, around the time of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so in August of 2014, a white police officer kills Mike Brown, an unarmed teenager. Uh, Black Lives Matter, which is a phrase that has been around since the 2013 acquittal of uh, Trayvon Martin's killer, becomes a national topic of conversation, you could even say controversy. And in the middle of it, I like a lot of people are trying to make sense of what's happening racially in America. And as I'm reading articles and, and just kind of researching as an interested you know, citizen, resident of the U.S., I'm finding that historians often have the most helpful things to say. And this era, 2015, 2016, coincided with me uh, getting done with seminary uh, and my MDiv and looking at PhD programs. And so as sort of an exploratory step, I took a grad school class at Jackson State University, which is a historically black college. And uh, it was on history of the New South, it was uh, the South after the Civil War, basically, and it just blew my mind. Here I was in my early 30s learning some of this civil rights history for the first time, learning the, the graphic nature and the violent nature of the Jim Crow era for the first time. It just blew my mind, and I just couldn't get enough. Like, I finished, this is the only course I've ever taken where I finished the course readings ahead of schedule. I was just that fascinated with the topic. And so that cemented my conviction to apply and later enroll in the PhD program in history at the University of Mississippi. And that's what led to the book. So there's several phases to the PhD, first your coursework, then uh, comprehensive exams, then your prospectus, then the dissertation. So I was in the first phase of that, doing my coursework, where all you do is read and discuss, read and discuss, read and discuss. And so I'm reading literally dozens of books about every area of U.S. history, from labor to health to education, and all of it concerns race in some way, shape, or form. And I noticed two things. Number one, a lot of historians sort of gave short shrift to religion, and specifically Christianity, in the formation of the nation or its ideological beliefs about race. And then two, whenever Christianity was mentioned, it was often in a negative light because they were talking about white Christians and their um, sort of apathy and passivity and complicity with racism. So out of that, I was like, well, number one, 
uh, I'm mad and I need other people to be mad along with me. I can't be, you know, angry at this outrageous history all by myself. So how can I put this out in a digestible way for, for other people to, to sort of develop a sense of righteous anger and want to do something about it? And then number two, I also recognize most people do not have the luxury or privilege to read dozens and dozens of books on history like I was doing. So how can we put this in, you know, a condensed form in one volume, which is, you know, sort of what led to the historical survey as an approach. Uh, but it really came in the midst of graduate school as I was doing the coursework and just pulling on the work of other historians and scholars and putting it into a form that I thought would be helpful for the church. And so this then leads to the book. And uh, your book, again, The Color of Compromise, is broadly a historical survey of the American church's complicity with racism, and then practical suggestions for moving forward. And I'm aware that there are people right now who are probably listening to this that are having a similar moment that you had in your 30s, and where, where they're like, wait, what? There's more to the story than I know. I think that maybe even just over the last months, maybe there's just some surprise that the church has anything to do with it, and the church has a role to play in this gigantic conversation about race as well. And so can you start to give us a broad framework of how the church has been complicit in racism and what that looks like? Sure. And I I actually get more often that those words compromise and complicity aren't strong enough Hmm. uh, to to describe the ways that Christians, particularly white Christians in the United States, have um, served actually to be at the forefront of creating a racial caste system in this country. But I begin the book with a story, the very tragic murder of four little girls at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. And right after that, a young white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. gives a speech to the all-white young men's business club in the, uh, in the city. And he asked them a series of rhetorical questions. He says, who did it? Who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro or a white? And then what he said next was very telling. He said, the answer should be, we all did it. Every last one of us. And what he was getting at there was this idea of compromise. The fact that Birmingham already had a neighborhood nicknamed Dynamite Hill because there were so many racial terror attacks that had already taken place. The the fact that Birmingham was earning the nickname of Bombingham because that happened so often. And so this wasn't the first time. And, and what he was challenging his listeners with was, why didn't we speak up more forcefully? Why didn't we oppose this the first time it happened so that it never happened again? And I think that's important because it's too easy for us to speak in terms of extremes, to look at people who burn crosses or put on white robes and hoods or strung up the lynchers. Uh, noose uh, and say, look, those are the real racists. Uh, because by implication, if those are the real racists, then guess what? I'm not racist. I'm not part of the problem. When the reality is, it was the silence. It was the apathy. It was the lack of action in many cases that created the context for the most egregious acts of racism to occur. So I wanted folks to get a sense of the sins of not just commission, but omission. The fact that silence can be violence. And that the vast majority of white Christians, even though they may not have been doing these overt acts of racism, although they often were, if they didn't stand up against it, in some way they were passively supporting it. So that's the idea that we're trying to get at with compromise and complicity. 
church is a broad term, even just in a U.S. context. Are there sectors to the U.S. church that, as you've studied their history, either have a better or worse version of history, or does it just cut across all U.S. churches? If it's a predominantly white church or denomination, generally the story is more negative than you think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, It has not at all been the case that I've been pleasantly surprised by the history of white churches or traditions when it comes to race. In fact, the, the story has often been more dire than, than we care to admit or think about. What it has done on the flip side, though, is given me a greater appreciation for the black church tradition. And again, that's a very broad term. And one of the mistakes we make is, is to paint black Christians with a monolithic brush. But it is a church and um, traditions that arose in the context of oppression and have become very adept in thinking about liberation in a theological and biblical sense. And so we have a lot to learn from black churches and especially historic black churches and traditions. So I think it highlights for me not just the compromise and complicity of white churches in the U.S., but of the strength and resilience of Black churches and the churches that are in other marginalized and oppressed communities. Do you find that churches are beginning to acknowledge this history and do anything about it? Like, What do you feel like the wave of consciousness is among the U.S. church about this at this point? By and large, I think most people, Christian or not, tend to underestimate the cost of racial justice. If this problem is indeed as deep and as long as I try to argue in the book, then we're going to have to rethink things from top to bottom, especially when it comes to our institutions. And so all that is to say that churches and Christian institutions are making gestures. Um, So I can look at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the historical study they did about their racist founding and their white supremacist founders. And uh, it was a very honest history, but it was a history that stopped in the 1960s and did not acknowledge the ongoing forms of racism and marginalization from the 1960s forward. And so that's a case of, you know, sort of a half step, two steps forward, one step back kind of a thing. I have seen other churches who, especially historic churches, who have sort of made publicly known their their church's racist and historical roots. I'm thinking of First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, which back in the 1860s hosted the first meeting of what was the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America, which was the Southern Presbyterian branch that split off from their Northern counterparts. And their former pastor, George Robertson, went back, wrote about that history, shared it with the congregation, publicly shared it beyond the congregation, So those are good things, but obviously it's not enough. And I think the challenge really comes when we start to talk about power and money. So are Christian institutions changing? Are Christian churches changing? Yeah, I think in this current wave, I can even acknowledge that. And I'm very skeptical because I'm a student of history and I know how racist this country can be. You know, in 2015, 2016, we were basically begging white Christian leaders to say something about black lives, you know, uh, to speak up about racial justice, just to do the bare minimum. In 2020, 
we've had to do a lot less of that. You've seen some proactive measures, for instance, J.D. Greer, president, current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, making moves to retire the gavel that was held by a racist white supremacist and has been used in official convenings for over a century with the SBC. Right, uh, right, or right. recording a video that said Black Lives Matter multiple times, which should not be a controversial idea, but in those circles it is. Yeah, so yeah. we're seeing those gestures, but at the same time, to rethink things from top to bottom, how our churches and institutions are financed, what impact does that have on marginalized communities? Who is in power? How do we share power? How do we move from you know, a mere creating a position, diversity, equity, and inclusion advisor to the president and really work in equity into every facet of how we operate? That's the counting the cost that I think a lot of Christians just can't even conceptualize right now because they are not yet aware of how deep and pervasive the problem of racism is. So we are hearing this and we're reading your book and we're realizing that there is this necessary top-down rebuilding or, or at least reconsidering that should happen or is in the process of happening. What what does the person who found their like for example like their local Methodist church and they showed up and they liked the sermon and they liked the children's ministry and they decided to attend that church, and now they're trying to reconcile that place and asking themselves, should I even be attending this church? I, I mean, I you know, I, I mean, the question I'm actually asking is like, do we all quit our churches? Is is there a way to not be supportive of injustice but to still have a place to go to? That's good. I think that's a very practical on the ground question. It's obviously very contextual because literally every congregation is different. And so to me, I'm willing to work with a church that is willing to uh, wrestle with this history and complicity and try to move forward in productive ways. So it would depend, I think, on the attitude and the disposition, particularly of church leadership, but but also of, of many of the members as well. So it's not to say that you can't work through uh, some of the historical legacies of racism in one's own church or denomination. But there is a question about whether a congregation and its leadership are really willing to do that work. Uh, because honestly, any Christian church, even the most racist of them, would give lip service to racial equality and say things like, well, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The gospel should be preached to all people. That's hardly a bold statement because that has nothing to do with your actual practice or even more importantly, wrestling with your specific history as a church or a denomination. So there are, I think there are a lot of churches that are giving lip service to that, but aren't really changing programs, changing initiatives, changing their budget, changing leadership. I mean, I just think right now we're in this critical moment of, I've, all, I've been saying for weeks now, if not now, when? Because uh, there was a report in the New York Times, there was a study done that estimated the, the number of people who have participated in demonstrations, I think it might have been just during one month, and it was between 15 and 26 million, making it the largest civil rights movement in our nation's history. Wow. Even bigger than the 1950s and 60s. So the, so, so the way we're looking back 50, 60 years ago at that movement, should the Lord tarry People 50, 60 years from now are going to be looking at this moment we're in right now as even bigger. And so my point is, if your church is not willing to make bold moves now, what's it going to take? 
I mean, how big does the movement have to be? How many more black deaths do there have to be? What more violence does, does there have to be in order for Christians to take this seriously and centrally as a form of honestly our gospel witness in the world? Because I think in the, in the case of the United States, uh, there's probably not been anything more damaging to the witness of the church than the racism of the church. And so what are we, what are we doing about that? So if your church is, is hesitant or tentative now, I don't know that it's going to get much better. And so that may be, it may be time to move on. Um, and I think especially black people and people of color in predominantly white Christian spaces need to feel free to understand that God works in our lives in seasons. And we may have been at this place for a season. And as long as we were faithful in what we were called to do there, there's no shame, no mistake, no regret in saying that season is over and it's time for a new season. Especially because, as we know, in these times of heightened racial tensions, it's more taxing and it's more work on uh, Black people and people of color. And so you need to be, you need to have some community that affirms your embodied existence. So that could mean staying at your church or Christian institution that's predominantly white, but you have to have a circle of people particularly a circle of other believers who can affirm you and strengthen you and rejuvenate you. And this was true in my case. At, at one point, my church, my school, my residential life was all surrounded by white people. And so there was like no escape <laughs> from racism. And that is a recipe for burnout. So you got to have a community that is a place of healing and restoration. And it's perfectly fine. And in some cases, inevitable that that's going to be an ethnic-specific community. Uh, and I think white people are afraid of that, right? Like when uh, if black people get together or say this is for just for us, they think it's separatist, they mm. think it's reverse racism, they think it's divisive. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is these are usually places that strengthen us in order to go back into these predominantly white spaces. And without them, we would leave all together. So I think churches and groups shouldn't be afraid of those kind of affinity groups. I do appreciate that. Um, if you don't mind, would you mind putting on your MDiv hat for a second? Maybe you never taken that hat off, but um, it, there's a part of this that's hard because people start to talk about the complex relationship between the U.S. church uh, and the church and racism and the U.S. history of slavery, and they start to rewind and they get to Bible verses like Ephesians 6. Obviously, you've heard this, but it's worth noting, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And they point back to this and they say like, well, was, isn't this the original sin? It's here in black and white in the Bible. Is this some sort of endorsement or at least acceptance of slavery? I know you've thought about this, but I'm curious how you would respond when a parishioner brings up this verse and looks at you for answers and clarity. So that is what uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, who works with the Poor People's Campaign, that's what he would call slaveholder religion. And it's a very selective and myopic reading of scripture that essentially follows a conviction that one already holds that black people are inferior or are sort of divinely ordained to hold a position of servitude in relation to white people. A lot of times that theology follows uh, what you already believe, and so you're sort of cherry-picking verses or twisting scripture to make it match what you want it to be. Hmm. That's what yeah. Dabney did, that's what Thornwell did, that's what many pro-slavery Christians did. 
And uh, that was, I, I write in the chapter about the Civil War, uh, that the battle wasn't fought just with bullets, it was a battle for the Bible as well. And a lot of times the way these arguments, debates, disagreements are characterized as one side being for biblical inspiration and the plain, quote-unquote, plain reading of Scripture, and the other side uh, doing twists and turns and flipping it to fit their liberal agenda. And that's how Christians in the South looked at Christians in the North. They would point to passages like Ephesians 6 and say, see, right there, the Bible says slaves obey your masters. Nowhere does it explicitly condemn slavery. We are being faithful to Scripture, and that's what leads us to this pro-slavery position. Meanwhile, you abolitionists are doing funny things with scripture. You're going beyond the text. You don't believe it's uh, God's inspired word, et cetera, et cetera. Those debates are still happening in the present day. The last thing I'll say about that is the kind of slavery talked about in the ancient Near East in the biblical context is vastly different from the race-based chattel slavery that took hold in the United States, where some of the distinctives were you were born into slavery, your condition of servitude was determined by matrilineal descendancy and not patrilineal descendancy, which had been the tradition in Europe. So if you were, it depended on your status, of the status of your mother rather than the status of your father, because if it depended on the status of your father, then all of these white plantation owners who raped black women, the children from that rape would have been free. So they had to make it under the mother. Um, it was for a lifetime. This was not indentured servitude where you could work your way out uh, after a period of years. You were born into slavery, you lived in slavery, and you died in slavery. And you were considered property. You were not a, a considered human, which is why you couldn't sue, which is why you couldn't own property, which is why your marriage couldn't be recognized legally. Uh, you were in the same category as a plow or a horse or a cart. And that's how you got treated and bought and sold. And that's what separated families and all of that stuff. So understand that the kind of uh, slavery practice in the United States was a particularly pernicious and torturous form of unfree labor, uh, even among the many different kinds of unfree labor that, that have and continue to exist. In our remaining moments, I have two quick questions that I think won't be able to be answered with quick answers, but uh, I want to ask them nonetheless. And the first is, um, you've been really vocal about your support of Mississippi's choice to remove the Confederate flag from the state flag. And for those that aren't familiar, there's kind of a Confederate flag embedded within the flag of the Mississippi flag. What does it mean to you to have that symbol removed? Oh, I'll speak to you from personal experience. So I have to pass that flag every time I go into Mississippi. I have to pass it twice, one at a truck way station and one at a, a welcome center. <laughs> welcome in quotes. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt. But that is just so uh, deeply interesting to know that it's, it's like you know exactly where they are. I know exactly where they are. And it, without fail, it irks me <laughs> every time, because especially as a student of history, knowing what that flag represents, how it has been deployed, and what it means for Black people. It means the subjugation of Black people. And, it, and, and these flags are flying in the middle of cotton fields, basically. And so the imagery there and the symbolism couldn't be more stark, yeah. couldn't be more powerful. Yeah. 
And then to know all the arguments and the rhetorical and intellectual contortions that people use to defend the flying of the Confederate battle flag or the protection and preservation of monuments to the Confederacy and to Confederate uh, military leaders, it is infuriating. There's nothing less than infuriating. There's no way these symbols should be protected, defended, up, honored anywhere. I mean, we're fighting a battle right now. Uh, Finally, the University of Mississippi voted to remove the Confederate monument that stands at the entrance of campus, which supposedly welcomes people to the campus, but it doesn't welcome people who look like me or anybody who wants to ally themselves with the oppressed. But now we're fighting the battle uh, that they want to spend over a million dollars to beautify the Confederate cemetery, basically creating a shrine to the Confederacy. That's just on campus. Off campus in Oxford, where the university uh, is located, in the center of what's called the square, the most notable area of the entire town, stands a 30 plus foot tall Confederate monument right in front of the courthouse. Now think about that symbolism. Number one, it's at the center of town. So it's sort of the center of civic life. And then then number two, it's in front of the courthouse, which means that it's casting a shadow over justice in the area. Right. It's just the gateway to the justice exactly. system. Exactly. And so we're fighting a battle to, to get that pulled down. Uh, so it's sometimes complex, but there are some things that are clear. We don't need monuments to Robert E. Lee. We don't need monuments to Nathan Bedford Forrest. We don't need monuments to Jefferson Davis or some of these folks who whose legacy is really a defense of the Confederacy and egregious forms of white supremacy. So they need to come down. That shouldn't even be a question for Christians. We should be very wary of idol worship, uh, which can come in the form of worshiping the lost cause or mythical figures that we've valorized. And it should also not be a question simply because uh, of love of neighbor and knowing whatever your relationship to that monument or that flag, you know that it hurts your brothers and sisters. So why would you protect and defend it? Why would you, why would you go to the mat? To, to defend something that is offensive to other people who call on the name of Christ too. Okay, last question. Uh, for a person who is just lit up right now, they are on the, the treadmill <laughs> and they're running, they're like, I'm going to talk to my church, I'm going to read the book, I'm going to take down the flags. Like there's just all this great energy um, just collectively around the US. There's this energy and people are looking for ways that they can actually be helpful. What would you offer people as just a first step to engage and be helpful in the work that you are so deeply part of and, and really leading us in? Well, uh, you didn't mean this, but it's a plug for my next book called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Oh, I, I didn't even know that. That's poor research on my part, but that's a great answer. When does it come out? It comes out January 2021. But I will point people to a uh, Facebook group that's happening right now. If you go to facebook.com slash groups slash the color of compromise, and it's a five-week study that we just started in the first week of August, we're going to wrap up the color of compromise, but I'll also give you a preview of how to fight racism. And so you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash the color of compromise to join that group. In the last week of the study, we'll be talking about how to fight racism. Briefly, I'll say it's based on a model I've been working on called the Arc of Racial Justice. And you can find more about this in the last chapter of The Color of Compromise. But Arc is an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. 
And so as we think about what to do about racial justice, I think we need to think in those categories, broadly speaking. How do we build awareness? How do we build knowledge? That's the documentaries. That's the panel discussions. That's listening to this podcast. But how do we move further? Because we know that in the Christian frame, especially, all reconciliation is relational. How do we demonstrate empathy and solidarity with people who are different from us, especially with the marginalized and oppressed? And particularly for white people, you're going to have to go out of your way to develop meaningful relationships with people who are different because our whole society has been designed to keep white people separate from people of color. And then lastly, we have to work on the commitment aspect, by which I mean fighting against racist policies that operate independently of personal motivation or personal prejudice, but still function to perpetuate and deepen racial inequality. Well, my deepest thanks to Jamar. I am, again, very curious to hear your thoughts on this. We are on social media. Of course, New Activist is both Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that. New Activist is one word, and our website is newactivist.is. I would encourage you also to keep up with Jamar. His website is jamartisby.com. P.S. All these links that I'm saying are going to be in the show notes, so no need to stop driving and write this down. JamarTisby.com, links to his social, writing, speaking, book, everything are all there. Make sure you spend some more time with Jamar. He is someone who I learn a lot from and hope you will continue to as well. A huge thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. I'm wearing my Propaganda shirt right now. His uh, his music, merch, coffee merch, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. He is also on Twitter, prophiphop. P.S. His new show, The Red Couch Podcast, just launched its new season. He and his wife host an amazing show. Totally listen to The Red Couch Podcast. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted, directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Jamar Tisby, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Cuffles. Take care, friends. <laughs>